And we talked about the need for mutual respect and honor because we came from God, we were made for God, we are created in the, in the image of God. And as James puts it, we cannot, with one side of our mouth, bless God and with the other curse a man or a woman that God has made in his image. So uh, we talked about the equality of, of the sexes and then we talked about marriage being a partnership from chapter 2. The woman was made to complete the man. He was only half there until she was created. She was created to be his helper, a helper suitable for him. And uh, we, we talked about that word, helper. It's, it's, a, it's a, a noble term. It's a word that's used for God who comes to our salvation. The woman comes to save the man from his, lonely, uh, his loneliness. She is his partner. So we have to look at all of life in terms of, of our things. This is not my house. This is our house. Uh, these are not my children. These are our children. Uh, this is not my world. This is our world. God has not given the man the mandate to rule over creation, but that man, mandate is given to man and woman equally. So this is our world that together we uh, venture into and we bring under our control to the extent that we can bring our fallen world under our control. Now let's look at chapter 3, and we want to look at a marriage that's gone wrong. Uh, so if you want a third P for, for your outline, chapter 1 describes the parity of the sexes. Uh, chapter 2, the polarity of the sexes. We are different, although that difference is not uh, spelled out. And now chapter 4, the problems that the sexes have. Now let's begin reading, uh, beginning with verse, uh, with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Uh, when I think of crafty, I think of cunning or cagey, shrewd. That seems to be the, uh, the meaning of the term. And uh, the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? We recognize the voice of the evil one. He's up to his old tricks. He begins uh, in the very beginning to uh, doubt God's uh, goodness. Is God really good? Has God really said you can't eat from any of the trees that are in the garden? Of course, that's not. That wasn't the case. They were given a whole world of trees to enjoy. But he singles out the one prohibition and suggests that God is a, is a stuffed shirt. He's a, a kind of cosmic wet blanket who's trying to, to take away some good thing from you. Has he really said that? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. We have to be very careful in Genesis that we don't read too much into the text. It's easy to infer a lot more than the text actually says. We don't know where she got her information, for example. Some commentators infer that uh, she must have received this information from Adam. God told Adam. That's clear from, from chapter 1. The prohibition was given to him. Whether he then passed it on to her or whether she received it directly from God, we don't know. But in any case, she knew what was true. She was not, she was not to have anything to do with the fruit. Also, I don't think we can infer too much from the fact that you must not touch it. Some have suggested a little note of petulance there. She, she says, we can't eat it. And she sort of pouts, we can't even touch it. 
But again, it's an inference. The text doesn't tell us that that's not what God said. He may very well have said, don't, don't even get close to that thing. We simply don't know. But she had it straight. She knew exactly what God had said. Verse 4, the serpent responds, you will not die. That's the lie. That's the big lie, that the sin has no consequences. We can sin with impunity and get away with it. Nothing will happen to us. God said, if you eat the fruit, you'll die. Adam said, or the serpent said, you won't die. You won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God is trying to withhold something good from you. He's trying to keep you from something that's going to satisfy and fulfill you and be meaningful to, to you. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of them both were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Eve was deceived into believing that what really matters in life is the physical and emotional and intellectual. And, and that's what we're duped into believing. If you really want to live, you've got to have something that, uh, that satisfies you on the physical level. You, you need a lovely home. You need nice cars. You need a, a coordinated wardrobe. You've, you've got to have this, that, the other thing be t before you're happy. That's what will satisfy you. Or something that's pleasing to the eye, some, something aesthetically pleasing is going to satisfy you, something beautiful to look at, or something that, uh, that will give you an edge on someone else intellectually. You'll have a little bit more information or a little bit more wisdom than anyone else has. What Satan is saying is what he always says. Uh, he's saying that the lifeline is something physical, emotional, or intellectual. And what God wanted Adam and Eve to understand is that the lifeline is spiritual. We were made for God. We're only satisfied when we live in God and when we're dependent upon Him. We get our life from Him. That's the whole point. And other things may be marginally satisfying, but only God ultimately satisfies. And she, she was duped. She was deceived into believing that something, that, uh, something else would satisfy, something other than God. Uh, this sounds very much uh, like First John, doesn't it? First John 2. Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of the life. Pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. This world uh, passes away, he says, but those who do the will of God will live forever. We are eternal beings. We were, we were intended for God and for heaven, and nothing, nothing in this world will ultimately satisfy us. When we have God, things are much more meaningful. When we don't have God, the things of life are, are ultimately unsatisfying. Now, that's the sum and substance of the temptation. And she was deceived somehow into believing that there are no consequences to disobeying God. That, that seems to be the, the essence of, of the deceit here. So she took some of the fruit and she gave it to her husband. And he ate it, and then they fell. Their eyes were open. They realized they were, they were naked. They lost their innocence. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Human expedients are always pathetic, aren't they? 
They tried to hide, hide their nakedness. I don't know why Satan caught the woman out in the open. I don't know why he deceived her and not Adam. Again, there are a number of things that are inferred from this passage. One is that she is inherently more deceivable, but Scripture does not teach that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that women are inherently more likely to be deceived than men. Satan is the deceiver. He deceives both men and women. And I, I don't know why the human race only fell when Adam ate. And I don't know what would have happened if Adam would have said, All right, yeah, Okay, hon, put the thing back. Come on, put it back. God told us not to mess. Put, put it in. Go grab the snake and say, Look, if you ever mess with my wife again, I'm going to flatten your lip. I don't, you know, maybe that would have been the end of it. I don't know. We're just not told. All I know is that uh, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They acted contrary to the will of God, and they lost their innocence. Nudists try to go back to that innocent state, and they just can't recapture it. Our, our, our shame at our nakedness is really symbolic of the fact that we know there's something wrong with us. We want to cover ourselves up. We want to put on clothes because we don't like ourselves very well. So they experienced shame, and then they experienced guilt. The man and his wife heard the sound or the voice of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And that's what sin does. It separates us from God, and it separates us from one another. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? The Hebrew expression expresses something of the pathos in that call. Eka, he says, Where are you? Something of his passion and, and, and his pain. And the interesting thing to me is that God himself took the initiative to try to recapture man. They were hiding. And God went looking, went seeking, came to seek and to save the lost and, and the lonely. He knows that man will only be satisfied when he is in, re, he is in relationship to God. So he goes looking for mankind. Always has and always will. Uh, the man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. You see what they're doing? Passing the blame. This is called passing the buck. Uh, the Lord finds... Uh, Adam, and he said, what, what have you done? She did it. This woman, you gave me. You did it to me. She just, she gave me the fruit, and the, 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 the fruit and I ate. And then he says, what, what have you done? The woman says, the serpent did it. The snake made me do it. The devil made me do it. And here you have another element introduced into the marriage relationship. We're going to talk more about this later, not, not this morning, but this, this idea of hiding from one another and blaming one another is at the root of so many of our problems. You know, men say, I drink because my wife makes me drink. If you had to live with this woman, you would know why I drink. And she says, I nag because he's a lazy bum. If I, if he were a hard-working man, I wouldn't have to nag him. I have to nag. That's the man you gave me. If I don't nag him, he's never going to amount to anything. Which is why Jesus said, you got to get the beam out of your own eye before you start working it on the speck in somebody else's eye. 
The only person you can do very much about, as C.S. Lewis said, is yourself. You can't change the other person. When you try to change the other person, you put so much strain on a relationship, you, you destroy it. You can't do that. You've got to work on yourself. That's what matters. We have to get ourselves into the right relationship with God. We have to respond to His call, and then we can begin to change as Helmut Thielke put it, a happy marriage is not a matter of finding the right person, but of being the right person. It's not a matter of changing that other person in, into the image of the husband or wife you want them to be. It's a matter of, of letting God deal with your own sin, straightening your own life up. Well, the serpent doesn't have anybody to blame. So the Lord begins with him. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. The rest of creation fell when, when mankind fell. Remember Romans 8? All of creation groans, frustration, locked into the, in, into the law of decay. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. Uh, anthropologists talk about uh, etiologies. That's the word they use for these folklorish tales that explain why certain animals or certain things have certain characteristics, like Uncle Remus' tales. You know, the piggy saw his monkey friend hanging by his other end. He tried the same thing on a rail. That's why a pig has a curly tail. That's an etiology. And some people would say, that's, that's what's going on here. This is an etiology. It, it explains why snakes crawl on the ground. But I don't know, no, no. Something much more profound going on here. Uh, I don't think that this is a new existence, a new mode of locomotion. I don't think snakes stood upright in, when they were created. I think they crawled on their belly. I, I think the point is that this mode of locomotion has new significance, new meaning. And whenever you see a snake, you'll, you'll think Satan is doomed to frustration. He's going to bite the dust, we would say. He's like the villain in, a, in an old Western melodrama who tries his best to overcome the heroine. And she always, you know, the hero shows up at the end and the villain slinks off saying, Curses! Foiled again! That's what's going to happen to the serpent. He's going to be foiled and frustrated, defeated over and over again. And ultimately, he's, he's, going to be, he's, he's going to be mortally wounded. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. The word is seed. Some of your translations will reflect that fact. Between your seed and hers, that is the demonic offspring and the offspring of the woman, will be in constant hostility. And he, he, I want you to underscore that in your mind if you don't underscore it in your Bible. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Actually, the same verb is used in both lines. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel or something like that is going on. It's a picture of someone stamping on the head of a snake and dealing a mortal wound to the snake, killing the snake crushing its head, but in so doing, receiving a painful wound in his heel. You know what it's like to have a stone bruise in your heel and how it hurts. Or maybe a picture of the snake striking him in the heel, and then he strikes the snake and kills it. But in any case, it's the serpent who is done to death. That's, that's the point. 
Very, very interesting passage. This is what uh, theologians describe as the proto-evangel, the first proclamation of the gospel. Here in the midst of this mess that man has made out of life, God promises salvation. One of these days, he says, one of these days, a man will come who will crush the head of the serpent. Paul picks this up in Romans 16 when he describes our Lord Jesus crushing the head of the serpent. But, oh, what it cost him. How much it cost him in terms of pain. What a beautiful picture of the cross on which our Lord suffered. He bruised his heel, but he crushed the head of the serpent. And here in the very beginning of human history, there is this, as someone has said, this rumor of hope. Hope is something's going to happen one of these days to set things right. And, and people just have to cling to that. Now, I, I, I want to make an observation. This is just an opinion, okay? I'm going to try to distinguish between opinions and, and what Scripture clearly says. We, we need to be careful that we don't confuse our, our opinions with authoritative statements of Scripture. But I just wonder about this statement. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity between the satanic, between Satan and the woman and the satanic seed and, and the seed of the woman. And I wonder if this isn't the root of, of male chauvinism. You know, we know, for example, the root of anti-Semitism is demonic. We know this from Revelation 12. It's a clear statement that one of the reasons the Jews have been so terribly suppressed over the years is because from the Jews, as Paul puts it, comes salvation. It's through, through the Jews that Israel came. And that, that's the explanation for the, you know, this irrational treatment that Jews have received from, from the very beginning. Because behind it is the evil one who's trying to destroy God's plan to bring salvation to the world. And I can't help but wonder if that's not what is behind the irrational treatment of women. I read just this last week that Aristotle, the wise man Aristotle, said that if you get married, marry a little bride because she'll be much less trouble than a big bride. And, you know, those are the kind of things that you hear wise men saying. They ought to know better. Where do these terrible jokes come from about women? I think the root of it is Satan's recognition that it's God's plan to save the world through a woman. Every Jewish woman wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. That's what Daniel refers to as the desire of every woman. And I think Satan, from the very beginning, was trying to destroy God's plan to bring salvation to the world. That's the promise. There will be hostility between the two, but nevertheless, God will, will bring his plan to fruition. And one of these days, the man will come to crush the head of the serpent. Incidentally, the Jews knew this. The earliest translation that we have, Greek translation of the New Testament, the Septuagint, translates this phrase, he, with a singular masculine pronoun. Just written in the 2nd century B.C. They knew that the seed was a man. You can't tell from the Hebrew because there's no neuter. It could be neuter. It could refer back to the seed. But in Greek, there is a neuter gender. And the Jews knew in the second century that this seed would be a man who would come from the woman and who would ultimately uh, put the serpent to death. Now, that's the consequences for the serpent. He is finished. He may go on doing his mischief and creating problems and blighting the world and bringing sickness and disease and suffering and he may distort and pervert our bodies and our minds and our personalities but in the end he's going to get it he doesn't have a chance his doom is is sure now to the woman he says 
I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, literally your sorrow and your conception. Your pain and your conception. With pain you will bring, uh, give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now in a word, I think what he's saying uh, to the woman is that your children and your husband will disappoint you. In essence, that's, that's, that's the result of the curse. Your children won't come through and neither will your man. Now let me tell you what I think, I think he's saying. When, when he describes uh, an increase in pain and childbearing and, and giving birth, he's not talking so much about the pain of childbirth as it is the pain and sorrow of child rearing. The word for pain here is not the word for physical pain. It's the word for anything that's hard to bear, but specifically emotional pressure. So we're the choose in Isaiah 53 of our Lord. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's that term. So it really has the idea of sorrow, grief, heartache would be our word. You know, it's not just childbirth. It's the heartache of bringing little, little fallen creatures into the world. Little chips off the old Adamic block. They're sinners just like their old man. And you can't get away from it. Most women long to have children. It's very natural longing that they have. They can hardly wait to have them. And then they have these children. And they're little rascals. They break their hearts. And, and that's one of the results of the fall. If you want a vivid example of it, read chapter 4. Eve gives birth to a son and she says, this is the one. This is it. This is the man who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And what he did was kill his brother. And uh, the next child she had, she named weakness, futility, Enosh. Because she realized that the, you know, her children disappointed her. So that's the first result of, of the fall. Our children disappoint us. Oh, they're great. I have children. I have grandchildren. I, 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 I love them all. But oh my, they cause so much heartache and so much pain, don't they? Second result, I think, is an ambivalent relationship to her husband. He won't come through for her either. Your longing, he says, will be for your husband. Now, there's nothing sinister or sinful or sexual about that term longing. It occurs in three places in the Old Testament. Here and right across the page where he says to Cain, where God says to Cain, sin desires to have you. There's nothing sexual about that. Nothing other than just a strong passion. Sin is like an animal crouching at your door ready to devour you. It longs to have you. It's a word used in Song of Songs. The woman says to her, to her man, You are my beloved and your desire is for me. It's just, it just means a, just love and affection, longing, yearning, that sort of thing. That's all. And I think what, what, what God is saying is that the woman longs to be loved. She longs to be accepted. She longs to be considered a person, to be treated with sensitivity and with patience and with understanding. And her husband turns out to be a turkey. He says, your longing will be for him and he will rule over you. And it uses the Hebrew word that means to rule. It's an iron-fisted rule without sensitivity. That's the problem, you see. Your husband won't come through. That's another thing that, that most women are looking forward to. Not all. But most women are looking forward to the time they get married and they're, you know, they'll have a, a man who will love them. And then they discover that he doesn't come through. He's a fallen man. 
Just like these children, they're little fallen men and women. And he disappoints them. Now, let me, let, me, let me describe for you the normal scenario on any given night, okay? Six o'clock rolls around, mom's in the kitchen. She's cooking dinner. Baby has diarrhea and uh, needs an oil change, but she doesn't have time, so the baby is on her hip, and she's stirring a chili. Uh, cat throws up on the kitchen floor about that time. She's already ankle-deep in orange juice and cracker crumbs. And the phone rings, the saucepan boils over, she picks up the phone. She's trying to juggle all these things at the same time. And the king comes home. He's woofed, he's been working hard all day. So he gives her a peck on the cheek and crashes in his favorite chair, flips on the TV, opens up the newspaper and checks out. Dinner time rolls around, they eat, he's usually watching TV or off in space and uh, the kids are throwing things on the floor playing vroom vroom you know like that tv ad and uh, she's cleaning up the mess after it's all over he goes back crashes in his chair she cleans up the kitchen takes the kids uh, in to get their bath uh, tucks them in reads a bible story to them prays with them staggers into the bedroom she's in there leaning against the wall in the meantime he's been watching james bond and he's thinking 007 is cool but I am cooler. <clears throat> so he saunters into the bedroom about 10 o'clock, and he says, Hey, babe, how about tonight? She says, How about what tonight? And she keels over into the bed. And that's it for the day. And she's lying there thinking, And this is what I signed up for? Now you laugh because it's so true. That's what happens. And I think this is what what is being described for us here. This, by the way, this is not a prophecy. This is not predictive. This is descriptive. This is just the way things are. That's all. This is not a... He's not dooming people to this. He's simply saying because we live in a fallen world, our children are fallen and they'll disappoint us. Our husbands are fallen and they'll disappoint us. Our wives are fallen and they will disappoint us. They won't come through either. We're, we're married to fallen people. Do you realize that? They, they don't at all correspond to the image that you had. You know, you, we always picture what our partner in life will be like. And when we get married, we discover that they're not that way at all. That what we saw was, was just, a, just a, what they wanted us to see. And then all of a sudden it comes home to us that we're, we're living with a fallen creature. We're stuck with this person for life. What are we going to do? And that's when despair begins to set in, apart from grace. Now, uh, the result for the man is frustration in his work. We've got to hurry on. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree by which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Though pain, Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. You know my story about the little boy who had this passage read to him in Sunday school. man is made out of dust, and he returns to dust, and he looked under his bed, and he saw a little dust roll, and he went running downstairs to his mother, and he said, Mother, there's a man under my bed, but I don't know whether he's coming or going. Uh... He says to Adam, y- y- you listen to the voice of your wife. Now, let me, let me just say at this point, there's nothing wrong with listening to the voice of your wife. 
Carolyn pointed out to me a couple of days ago that, that Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. And what he gave them was downright, uh, d- downright demonic philosophy. You mess with me, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, whoever messes with me, I'm going to bust your nose. No, no, no. There's nothing wrong with listening to the, the voice of your wife. What was wrong is listening to the voice of your wife if your wife has been listening to the devil. And I'd say the other, the converse is true too. You shouldn't listen to your husband if your husband has been listening to the devil. But assuming that husband and wife have been listening to the voice of God, then yes, yes. Just as David listened to Abigail, and, and just as there are the stories all the way through Scripture of men and women listening to one another because they'd heard the voice of God, we need to listen to one another. There's nothing wrong with listening to the voice of your wife. It's the problem here is where his wife got her source, or it was her wife's source of information. Because you listen, cursed is the ground. This is the explanation for why we have to work so hard and nothing ever comes of it. This is why payday is never the payoff. This is why men become workaholics. You work and you work and you work and you think one of these days it's going to pay off. But it never does. never does. That's why most of us are frustrated in our jobs. Now, I like my job. And a lot of you men like your jobs. I never get over the fact that I get paid for doing something I really enjoy doing. I never take that for granted. And some of the rest of you are that way. But... But the ground still works hard, even holy ground, so to speak. It still works hard, you see. It still frustrates us. And we never, never find our fulfillment in our job. And if we're trying to do that, we'll always be frustrated. And that's what creates problems for men. And that's what creates problems for their wives because they're basically married to their jobs. They're trying to get this thing to yield. They're out there trying to break the sod and it will not yield. And they get frustrated and angry and hostile. And that's often why they drink and why they turn to drugs. Because they can't find any satisfaction out there. And they never, never will. God said they won't. Life is hard. And then you die. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Now, I, I, I just want to say a couple of things. We've got to wrap this up. We want to spend some time around the Lord's table. To, to summarize chapter 3... I want to say the results of the fall is that our children disappoint us, our husbands disappoint us. And by the way, these, these, these roles, as we describe them here, are overlapping. I'm not a mother, but my children can be frustrating to me. See. And although this passage is not directed to men, it's directed to the woman, our relationship with our wives can be frustrating too. And there are a lot of women in the marketplace who find that, that their jobs are just as frustrating as men have discovered who have been out there for years. These roles, by the way, are not enjoined upon us. This is not, uh, there's no command in Scripture that women are not to be in the marketplace. Let's understand that. The Bible simply assumes things as they are. This is normally where women operate in the home, and men normally operate in the field. And this is where we feel the results of the curse, but, but the feelings overlap. I get frustrated with my home. You get you get frustrated with your husband's job. Let me give you one vivid illustration from the Old Testament, and then I'm done. It's the story of Leah and Rachel. Do you remember the story? Leah and Rachel were both wives of Jacob. Dear old scheming, conniving Jacob. Uh, he fell in love with Rachel. She had said she was beautiful of face and form. It says Leah had uh, weak eyes. She had thick glasses. And uh, that must be the origin of the term men don't make passes at girls that wear glasses. But that's not true. They do. But something, all, all we know is that something was wrong with Leah's eyes. 
Jacob liked Rachel. She was beautiful. So he, he made a deal with Laban. Her father is going to work for seven years for Rachel. Wedding night came, went into the tent, dark in the tent. Marriage was consummated. Next morning he wakes up and, he, and Leah's reaching over to put her glasses on. And he realizes, it's Leah, it's not Rachel. He comes storming out of the tent. What do you mean? I worked for Rachel. Well, you don't understand. We have to marry off the older one first. Then you, now you work seven more years, you can have Rachel. Very interesting text. It says Leah was not loved. Rachel was. So Leah said, oh, all right, I'm not going to find love in my husband. I'll find love in my children. So she started having children. It's interesting to study that story because Rachel had her husband's love, but she couldn't have children. She was terribly frustrated. Leah didn't have her husband's love, but she could have children. She had one right after another. She had Reuben. And his name means, uh, it's based on the Hebrew word to, to hear. She says, now my husband, will, God will hear my plea and my husband will love me. She had another son, named his name Simeon. He's the second of the 12 uh, heads of the tribes. And uh, his name is based on the word to see. Now my husband will see, God will see my affliction and my husband will love me. But he didn't. She had a third son, she named him Levi which is based on the Hebrew root to be attached. Now my husband will be attached to me, but he wasn't. And she had a fourth son. You remember what she named him? Judah. Because she says, now I'll praise the Lord. It took her a while, but she finally got the message. There's really only one place you can find satisfaction and fulfillment, and that's in God. There's only one place you're going to find significance, and that's in God. There's only one place you're going to find your worth, and that's in God. And, I, and, I, and I'm going to say that over and over and over again through this, this series on marriage because that is the foundation upon which everything else is built upon. Once you find your security and your significance in Jesus Christ, once you put your hope in God, then you begin to work on your marriage problems. Many of those problems, I think, are unsolvable without that rock bed confidence in God. Remember Sarah? Remember what Abraham was like? Would you want to have a husband who jeopardized your life and who puts you in somebody else's harem? That's the, kind of, that's the kind of husband that Abraham was. Sarah called him Lord. Do you know why? Because well, The text tells us why. Because she put her hope in God. She did not put her hope in Abraham. She put her hope in God. And that's what I hope you'll walk away from this text in the seed that trample the head of the serpent is the only one you can trust. In the middle of this debacle, there's hope. And the only hope that we have is in the one who is to come from Adam and Eve's standpoint, the one who has come from our standpoint, our Lord Jesus, who fills us to the full. And when we have that relationship with Him, then we can begin to work on the other problems in our marriages. Now let's pray. And let's prepare our hearts for this time of worship. These communion services always seem to come at the right time, at a time when our hearts are prepared for it. We've learned today from this text about the, the promised seed, the one who is to come. And, 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 and his coming and his death on the cross by which he put, put the, the serpent to death is what we celebrate in this, this meal together. So it's a good time for us to examine our hearts. 
perhaps some of you have drifted away from the Lord. You're not, you're not spending any time with Him anymore. You're not drawing near to Him in worship. You're not expressing your devotion to Him. You're not looking into the Word to learn from Him and to see Him. You're not praying either individually or as a couple. This is a good time to renew our faith in Him, to remind ourselves of the resources that are ours because He came, and to recommit ourselves to Him. Would you just tell Him this morning that you love Him, and with all your heart you want to submit to Him and serve Him? Tell Him that you want Him to give you your satisfaction and your feeling of worth. He promised that if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we'll be satisfied. He'll fill us. Lord Jesus, as we come, renew our love for you. Center our thoughts upon you. Give us again that heartfelt devotion that characterized our first love for you. We thank you that you long for us, that you long for our worship and our love, that you're out looking for us that all of these yearnings in our hearts are simply your, your voice calling us to renewed fellowship to you. We want to respond. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.